Hey y'all, Saxon here. Just a quick note about this episode. It was taped live this weekend at the Wavelength Summit put on by Water Music in Brooklyn, New York. They were so kind to invite Sam and I to do a live taping of an episode um, in front of a live audience. Uh, but because of that, we did have a slight technical difficulty uh, regarding uh, the uh, wireless mics. And so uh, there was a brief moment in this episode where we had to make some adjustments. But um, for the most part, everything went pretty smoothly. But just to let you know that the audio quality of this show is very much live. So with that note done, please enjoy. Another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. The podcast. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always. And today, today is a special recording. We are currently live at the Wavelength Summit in front of an actual audience. Hi, audience. Uh, <laughs> cool, cool. Wow. Um, sh- shout out to Sherry Hu and Water and Music, the research and intelligence network for new music business that Sherry founded. We are honored to have been invited to speak and record in front of so many interesting, intelligent, and talented people here. Looking. And, good, good yeah, looking. and good looking too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, hopefully just the first of many wavelength summits uh, to come. So for t- today's episode, surprise, surprise, everyone, we're talking about the most talked about thing in the music industry next to Taylor Swift being on tour, and that's AI, baby. <laughs> Obviously, the potential of AI, along with all... The concerns and questions surrounding it have been brought up. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's an AC. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, I've been brought up uh, at this summit here online. Uh, I was in a Thai restaurant, and people were, like, very passionately, like, feverishly last night, like, talking about uh, something about, like, the paperclip, paperclip problem. I don't know if that got brought up, and I was like, I just can't. I just got to eat my pad thai and move on. But, um, yeah, so it's a much-talked-about subject, but... Uh, so, <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Um, so what is the, uh, the money for nothing angle that we're bringing up to this discussion around AI? Well, friends, uh, you got yourself a couple of uh, old scene heads here who are uh, cranky. You got like a history PhD in Sam Backer, and uh, we're going to offer you all like, a little historical framework to think about. Um, and while we won't be waxing poetics about the potential of AI that much... Uh, we will be thinking about what this history of music and its relationship to new technologies can uh, offer us um, in this uh, exciting time. So to start, uh, before we uh, cast the long shadow of history over y'all, um, like many people in this room at the summit, uh, we, do, we do see it's crazy. potentials of AI. <laughs> we do, I swear. And, 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 you know, some of them are quite exciting, right, Sam? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean... Uh, like it's it's clearly we're all watching like a, the the drop the, the emergence of a fundamental technology and it's very unclear what that's gonna mean in many different ways and uh, it like this is new and this is different and that's important um, and it so you know everything from the ability to like really easily clone voices the potential um, I mean the generative possibilities for lyrics, the ability to kind of like 
rapidly expand uh, the diversity of experiences in various kinds of structured and unstructured ways, the rate of change of all this. Like, it's a wild, it's a wild time, and it would be, like, absurd to not acknowledge that. But... <laughs> but... All right, so to start over, what will make up the bulk of this episode is, as I, asked, as I said earlier, is the direction AI will take really be dictated by this new technology? And that is to say, the role that AI plays within the music industry and what is fast becoming kind of not a standalone industry, right? It's kind of as like, you know, not a standalone industry based around music commodity, but really becoming part of this broader transmedia landscape. You know, will the role AI plays really be driven by its potential. And if history tells us anything, the answer to that is not really. But it's complex as always. So maybe to offer some historical context, let's look at some of the latest major disruptions surrounding the music industry. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, so basically, like the premise of our, of our approach here and thinking through this as, as an issue, and maybe it's a little bit of a provocation, but is to think about the ways in which this technology, just like any technology, is gonna be instantiated, is gonna be built out into a space that has a history, that has an established set of power structures, that it has an established set of dynamics within those power structures, and that no technology is ever just kind of like dropped into a place where it can remake the world whole cloth, right? There's always been stuff that happened before. Um, and there's always, especially in regards to the music industry, right? Like an industry that predates the existence of recorded sound, full stop, right? Think about like, that. <laughs> they've, gone through, they've gone through major changes in, in, in their commodity form before, and they will again, the music industry will again in the future. And so thinking about the ways in which like the power of capital like not Capitol Records, but like well, Capitol. Well, that yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah we'll get to that. Um, but the power of capital, the power of money, the power of these companies, power and the ways that they've yeah, like built that those those relationships and that history into the legal structures that provide a framework for the music industry. Um, all of that is going to continue no matter what new technology emerges. And so in particular, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could think about this, but we're gonna, wanted to think through, I guess the last 20 odd years of music history really briefly as a way to kind of frame a discussion of what might happen next, right? Um, and, and to do that is kind of, I think, to push back, and this is one of the kind of uh, topics that we've, we've discussed a lot on the show, Saxon, which is um, that there's a kind of, I think, pernicious narrative about the last 20 years of music history. And, and in some ways, about the last 20 years of like society writ large, um, which is pushed by uh, Silicon Valley, among other sectors of like global capitalism. Um, and that is this like super techno-deterministic idea, right? This idea that technologies have innate ways they behave and that the like the the kind of like they're just technologies go in certain directions and do certain things regardless of like what people think and feel and decide and that's just like not that's not true <laughs> like technologies clearly have affordances right they make certain things easier they make other things harder new technologies push in a certain 
segment of directions, but they don't, they don't make those decisions for us. And I think in regards to the music industry, and we've talked about this a lot, Saxon, like in regards to the music industry, that techno-deterministic framework, I think, has really shaped people's understanding in the last 20 years, right? Uh, we, we call this, in, um, in an episode we did with our friend David Turner, who is sadly like <laughs> talking in a different room right now, um, we call this a Napster narrative, right? This idea that music got turned into MP3s by a long process, uh, and all of a sudden there was enough bandwidth <laughs> and there were enough MP3s and people could start downloading music and that technology in and of itself remade the modern music industry and that it nearly killed the record label, we all know the narrative, right? Nearly killed the record labels which seemed like they were dying and then slowly have managed to crawl back to some sort of profitability by fighting against the tide and also by reshaping their corporate structures in a variety of ways and like now we're here at streaming and finally the music industry, though maybe not all the artists, is making money again and isn't that great. And that's just in some ways, in many ways, not not true. Yeah, it's not the full story. Yeah, yeah. And kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, I mean, I think it's just going back to this idea of, of like potential. I mean, like think about like the potentials of the internet and then think about where the fuck the internet is now, you know? Or I mean, you could, and you could do this for anything. I mean, you know, and if you look back and you read, you know, the promises of these new technologies and the, the publicity that was going on, going back to like, I don't know, like the fucking telephone, <laughs> you know, and like the amount, then what was said then and then like where we are now, it's never, the potentials are never matched ever. And that's because of what you're saying is that it's like, it's part of this whole system of like, you know, capital and power and laws that like it has to interact with, you know? So I think, I think yeah, when you go back to the music industry with this stuff, I mean, it, it, it's the exact same thing. If you look at Napster, if you look at the MP3, if you look at like the fights that happen, like why do, you know, why do we pay like 99 cents for, not that anybody does this anymore, but like why do we pay 99 cents for a song on Apple? Like there's a whole set of like circumstances involving like huge companies that made that decision. And like if you think about like the potential of the MP3 originally or like, or like you know, music as a digital commodity, like it didn't have to end up that way, but it did because of these things that we're talking about. Yeah, or I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'll push back a little bit. Like it didn't, it did, I mean, there's contingency, right? Like yeah, it did because of, and specifically, I would say that in the last 20 years, and, and this is really pertinent for what happens next, is it was a contingency that I think was in many ways structured by these like major intersectoral battles, right? Um, I think in, in many ways, like the, the fastest way to kind of reshape that Napster narrative is not that the music industry declined it's that Apple sold a lot of iPods, all of which were predicated on the idea of illegal downloading, right? Like, I believe that the first iPod, if not predated the Apple store, but like, it did. I'm seeing, I'm... Rip, mix, burn, right? Rip, rip, mix, burn. Rip, mix, burn. <laughs> yeah, and it's about three years before. Thank you, incredibly helpful audience. So, 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 yeah, so, so, 
Years before there was a structure for legally downloading music, the hottest consumer electronics product that really remade Apple, which is now the most valuable corporation in the world, except maybe like Saudi Aramco, um, another good commodity, uh, is selling products that are predicated on, in some ways, like eating the music industry's lunch, right? And so those kinds of uh, conflicts are able to reshape these industries and are able to reshape like the structure of commodities. Similarly like YouTube, right? When Google buys YouTube, there's internal documents that we have now where Google's like, we said don't be evil, which is like their tagline at the time. Um, but this website we're purchasing is in almost entirely based on copyright infringement. And again, it was years until that got cracked down on, right? And these are not like technologies just out there technologying somehow <laughs> as like amorphous like set, like agents in the world. No, these are like corporate and business decisions that decide how these new technologies, how the potentials for networking, how the potentials for streaming, how the potentials for downloading are gonna play out and are gonna be worked into the music industry. And so to kind of fast forward, right, the streaming economy we all know now is in many ways a result of those conflicts, right? That you get increased centralization of the major labels, you've got these deals with streaming services um, in which they, the major labels are able to extract a huge amount of the money that's paid into these streaming services. Um, and basically what you have is a move towards, I mean, the importance of IP to these companies is, been as always existed, um, but you get these really this new sense of like IP leverage by the now triopoly of the majors, right? That you need to play ball with them because in order for a streaming service to work, you want to be able to listen to whatever artist, but you also want to be able to listen to Britney Spears and Beyonce and Taylor Swift, or else you don't really have a product. And in order to have a product, you need to make a deal with these major labels that then have leverage over the digital music economy. Um, and that's kind of like that, <laughs> the system as it was constructed and the system as it uh, played out minus any form of technological determinism. And the system as it currently stands. And so I think that's what we're thinking about AI in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, this is great. It's got a great potential. We love it. But it's going to be dictated by the majors in so many ways. Or certainly it's going to be dictated by this landscape yeah. as, as it's currently constituted, right? Like, it's not going to... I mean, and, and that's complicated, I think, because we do have a sense... or. We have a sense, and we're starting to get a sense, I think, of how quickly AI is changing. Um, and there is a, and I think it's accurate um, to say that right now, these tools are more powerful than the things that we've used them, figured out what to do with them, right? That there's a lot of probably world-shaking stuff we can do with like <laughs> the AI we have right now, and that in fact, you know, the, the um, you know, like the, the, to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like, there's a lot of nails out there, though, actually. <laughs> um, and I think that we haven't even begun to really scratch the surface of, like, what we, we can point these tools 
what we can point these tools at. And again, so we don't want to underplay how potentially revolutionary these technologies are. Yeah, but and nor, nor do we want to like like present ourselves as like experts of like the, the, those possibilities. We're like merely bringing up the sort of historical context and the current like you know framework in which we're bringing it up right now. Yeah, and so the sense that all of those technologies, all those new possibilities, though, are gonna exist within that music industry that we kind of very, very, very briefly sketched out, right? Um, both from a social aspect, in terms of like what people expect from music and how people are used to interacting with it, and from a economic aspect, which includes, I think, um, and this is where I think we really differ with a lot of folks thinking about AI in this moment, which includes both like the legal structures, which are, as we said earlier, like a major part of how the music industry functions, that copyright laws were in certain ways not fully determined by the record industry in like 1914 Supreme Court hearings among and legislation among other things, right? Um, where <laughs> mostly it was player panels. Do you, were, do you want to go to like, I mean. I mean, player pianos were a big deal yeah. <laughs> at yeah. that moment. Um, the hot technology of uh, the aughts and teens, the 19 aughts and 19 teens. Um, but, right, this is an industry where, like, they're, the impact of the music industry, uh, both publishing companies and later record companies, on this, like, these legal frameworks has been profound. And so I think that a lot of times when people are thinking about these new technologies, they're mostly considering them within maybe like as those le as if those legal frameworks are the actual rules of the world and not a set of more or less contrivances that have been shaped over time that have been shaped by a series of court decisions that have been shaped by legislation that have been shaped by industries that are able to work over the really long term and so yeah it's possible to kind of get around certain kind of legal structures but what i think has been taken into account a lot less in terms of folks boosting these technologies is these, like the actual landscape, right? Like the relationships of power and leverage that a lot of these companies get from their ability to like play hardball, you know? That if they don't want to license, if UMG doesn't want to license to your whatever, like you don't get UMG products. And then you don't have the global, you know, the celestial jukebox. Um, yeah, they're not gonna like lose like, they're not going to let go of their grip of power, like, easily. And, I mean, you could already, like, see this happening. I mean, the first... Oh, a question. Wait, hold on. on. We're just going to mic you up real quick. Thank you. So, uh, I'm Bill Rosenblatt, and I just wrote a book about the history of tech disruption in the music industry. And so this topic is very interesting to me. And I think that if you look back further than the last 20 years, what you find is that... Each new disruptive technology that comes in causes the structure of the industry to modulate. And w one thing that we found out in researching the book is that this hegemony of major labels did not exist really before the 1970s. Before that, it was music publishers. And around that time is when the labels collectively got more revenue uh, than the publishers and then started to eat the publishers. And I think that with the streaming companies Certainly the majors have power. They have less power than before the streaming companies came in. Um, and that inflection point in terms of revenue was, was about 2014, 2015-ish, if you look at revenue. And you can make similar observations going back around consumer electronics, 
uh, the heyday of which you know was a long time ago, and jukeboxes and and all that, all radio, you know, a lot of other things you could say the same things about. So I think it's not going to happen immediately. I have no idea what it's going to look like, but there certainly are going to be fundamental changes of the structure of the industry due to AI that that um, are going to dislodge the current industry dynamics. So I, I think if my point is, if you look back further than 20 years, you get a sense of how these dynamics uh, come into play uh, more than just like, well, the labels are powerful. No, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I would push back a little bit. I think that that account in some ways underplays the importance of some of these labels. Certainly the level of monopoly that you get starting in the 70s um, and really accelerating to the present day and the level of centralization is really important. There, I would argue that there are kind of cycles, right? Um, specifically like with the relationship between labels and the major consumer, like RCA, for example, um, in, the, in the 30s and 40s, that you do get, yeah, like I would say like moments of centralization and decentralization in the industry, but I do take your point that the specific level of hegemony is a more distinctly modern perspective. Though I do think, I think there's more continuity maybe than that account you gave would suggest. Um, I think there's a fair, I mean, and certainly the publishers, but the publishers, you know, you get, we think about things like Sony or UMG, these multinational, multi-sectoral corporations as fairly new, but you know, the, most of the publishers, the big publishers got bought up by Hollywood in the, the mid-30s, um, many of those Hollywood companies get ties to like larger segments of the entertainment industry. Um, and, and I mean, I don't, I don't think like also like your, your points necessarily like diminish like what we're saying here because it's still working within this like gigantic system of like power and law that's being dictated by these like major companies. Like it's, we're, not, we're not saying that like, that like, you know, AI won't exist or something. I mean, clearly like the major labels are like, are definitely are like, you know, I mean, my, I had this thing in front of me, you know, Michael Nash, the VP of UMG, you know, wrote this like op-ed in Music Business Worldwide. I mean, clearly like they're, who I feel like was like a kind of soft shot over the bow where he was like, you know, uh, AI on DSPs begs the question as to which side of history all stakeholders in the music ecosystem want to be on. The side of artists, fans, and human creative expression or on the side of deep fakes, frauds, denying artists their due compensation. But their overall point, I mean, that's a shot over the bow, you know? And then of course, like, them like pulling like the whatever fake Drake you know stuff like and that's them like not that's not soft power that's hard power you know and so I mean like I, I actually take your point but I think it kind of fits into our argument and maybe we weren't you know I don't know being as clear enough but like yeah like I think that what we're trying to say is that it's going to be a battle it's going to be like it, it's not techno determinist it's like exists it's a it's a technology existing in this like system that like is going to like be a lot of like negotiating and giving and taking and there's going to be like laws law you know, reshaping and like it's just going to be like you know it's not going to be just and like, to think about it that way instead of just thinking about it with like rose colored glasses as if it's just going to be like the, you know oh all these amazing potentials which like yeah that's great i love these potentials as well i hate some of them but like you know, it's not techno-determinist, I think is what we're basically saying. And, and even, and as this industry will change, which it absolutely will, like its current historical configuration will in many ways, um, yeah, shape and determine what comes next. Um, and exactly how, how that 
how that functions, I don't think we quite know yet. Um, there's a question in the back. Hey, just a statement before you guys uh, move on from this. I, I, I was, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about the fact that some of this is already happening. And the thing I'm thinking about is the, uh, the purchase by the majors of like a lot of legacy catalogs from people like Sting and Bob Dylan and folks like that. Because uh, I, I make house music, I do a lot of sort of extraction and sampling type stuff. And there are technical capabilities to pulling sort of metadata about music that I suspect that the catalog purchases aside from their own sort of net value to being placed in movies or whatever is that it is a hedge against this kind of data-centric future music creation process. It gives them a license uh, or total ownership of the publishing with the idea that they can go out and make those cases about you know, not leveraging legacy content for the purpose of future generative type music. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. Do you want to respond to that, Sam, before I move on? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And I mean, I, I do think that like, um, certainly if we know anything about kind of the way that music um, court cases have been played out, right? Um, we recently did an episode about um, like the five years since the end of the Blurred Lines, or the end of what part two of the Blurred Lines, Endless Kerfluffle. And what was fascinating about it was um, that Initially, there were two songs that Blurred Lines was supposedly infringing. One's by Marvin Gaye and one's by Funkadelic. And the Funkadelic one probably like, had a, a better case in terms of like the melodic movement. But George Clinton sent out a tweet and was like, I don't like my publisher and like there is no infringement here because... In like one of those, yeah, there's like years of conflict between him and his publisher, apparently. Um, and no, and so in, in, in thinking about that, like certainly as court cases are gonna decide some of these big issues, having complete controls over major chunks of catalog so that when someone does something complicated with, I don't know, Sting, and then you can say like, well, no, there's not like this kind of welter of voices that might confuse a jury, that might confuse the proceedings. Um, actually, no, 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 there's a clear owner set of owners and they're able to make claims about the artistic legacy. Um, I think it's that, that, that's a really interesting point. And I think that that's, that's likely, likely true. Um, along with a whole lot of other... <laughs> those catalog sales are a whole other can of worms than the one we're going to get many, into many today. episodes on those, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, maybe get going back, kind of bringing it back to, like, uh, what, what we're discussing, like, and trying, like, like, maybe let's talk about, okay, considering, you know, our thesis for this episode, I guess we could say. Like, Sam, I'm kind of curious, like, what then can we imagine is next? And I think that, like, going through some of those things, I think, like, one thing that, like, we were talking about in preparation for this is just sort of like pop music as like a shared experience um, and how that like isn't really going away and how like best, yeah, I don't know, you want, you want, I know you have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, 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 no, which is, which is, I mean, one of the, I think the, the, the profound 
potentials and one of the so far clearest potentials of these AI technologies, right, is like every man their own Drake, <laughs> basically, right? The sense that it's possible to have a, like an endless proliferation of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, AI models trained on extensive set of artist music and then able to either spit out lyrics in the style of an artist or songs in the style of the artist or most currently the, you know, the, the ability to kind of do deep fake vocals, um, which I would argue actually isn't AI music exactly. I think it's useful to like make that differentiation. That seems to be, to be like another level of digital music production of which we've been doing for a long time, though uh, does connect, I think, with the broader like set of social dynamics around music, right? So if that's one of the real initial like day one promises of this technology, we were trying to think through like what what that could potentially do to the music industry, to the people's experience, to folks' experience of music. Um, and certainly there's some kind of like <laughs> Maybe straw many, but like not that straw many, like booster cases, which are like, this means that everyone, you know, the, the boundaries of artistic production are going to come way down and everyone's going to be able to make their own songs as their own favorite pop stars and we'll all be Britney Spears. Which like counted for me, I'm like, who actually wants to do this? And then who will be listening to it considering that over 100,000 songs are being uploaded daily to streaming services and like 99% of them are being listened to. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, <laughs> yeah. Um, There's that. And, and kind of on top of that, I think, is, is useful and it gives us an opportunity to think through what the music industry is and what the music industry does, um, I think, separate from what I refer to as industrial mass culture, right? Which is that I do think that there's often a perspective on, on the music industry that takes like 1960 as kind of like ground zero, right? Like the music industry was or originally was fundamentally a thing that produced physical objects, distributed them in trucks to actual record stores where they were, some of them were broken <laughs> before delivery. Some of them got there, people physically purchased them and took them home, right? And that there's a sense that like music is a thing that it fundamentally exists on a thing. And that, and so clearly we're not in that world anymore. But in some ways I think that the basic narrative has often been like, well, that's like, the before time was music physically existed on a thing and now it does this all this other stuff. And if you take a longer perspective, like that wasn't always true, right? Like music existed on sheet, sheet music that had to be performed by people. And it wasn't like in the olden days, it was these were pop songs, right? People were selling a million copies of sheet, sheet music in a year, right? Like, like real actual mass culture numbers. And had ways to get songs to move. And, and so I think that a lot of our assumptions about what the economic value of a piece of music are are kind of structured by this idea that there should or were originally physical things. And if you take that away, you can start thinking about what the value of a piece of music does, what the value, what creates the value of a piece of music, and how does that relate to an industry? And so one of the things I think that, that we've talked about, Saxon, in, in kind of preparing for this is thinking about like the, the value of that, the economic value of the social energy created by shared listening, which is another, another way of saying that like the valuable part of a piece of pop music, 
a valuable positive piece of music is the ways that you can listen to it with other people and share it with other people. That music in many ways is fundamentally social and that the economic value of music is in some ways based on selling something against those kinds of social meaningful experiences. You know, 50,000 people dressing up in sequin dresses and going to see Taylor Swift. I mean, like, even if AI can re recreate that, which I... I kind of question whether or not, like at least in its current iteration, like you can really like recreate that experience. Like even if you were able to recreate that experience, well, maybe I'm getting too ahead of time. But go ahead, yeah. No, 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 no. Exactly that. That being having ten thousand people being able to make a song that sounds like something or someone doesn't obviate the need for a set of shared experiences around artistic practices. And that if you think about the shared experience around artistic practices as the valuable thing, and that any commodity being sold is in some ways like being sold against that actual valuable thing, and that there have been very, there's infinite number of ways to like generate those kinds of economic activity around that valuable thing in the present. There have been many ways to generate that in the past, and that how something like the, the productive capacities of AI, um, to what extent it changes that. And to me, it, it changes it in some ways, but it doesn't, it doesn't remove it, right? That people are still gonna have a select set of pop stars that they like to engage with and that they like to engage with other people about and the parasocial activity that surrounds those experiences of pop stars or anti-pop stars, depending on one's like musical preference, right? Those social elements are, are absolutely vital and it seems like allow, instead of this like massive just wave of decentralization that some people have kind of predicting, it means that there's still points of leverage that then you could use to generate commodity flows off of. And I mean, I, kind of going back to what I was going to say about Taylor Swift was the fact that like, even if like AI somewhere down the road does create like AI Taylor Swift and does create that social value, currently in our current structure, who's best to like manage that career? It's the major labels. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, once again, reminding us going back to our original thesis, and that this is the technology emerging, emerging not like within a vacuum, but like a part of this, all these different kind of structures and relationships going on. And also, I think it's important um, to the to the gentleman in the back's point about these uh, kind of legacy catalog sales. Right? There's also the media history of this. No one, given the the kind of uh, endless fracturing of attention that has happened. Um, it is increasingly hard for like, like very few musicians are ever going to be as famous as the Beatles, not just because of anything that was might be innately important about the Beatles, but because there was an ability. There were you know there were like three channels on TV. There were fewer newspapers. The level of centralized media attention for those groups or for you know there used to be one MTV and it generated Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and Guns N' Roses and all those '80s bands that people are still touring. Or that people are still touring. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know that things are still being, you know, music sales are being generated against. And so, at least in the medium term, this limited number of like truly shared musical icons that then can cut through that kind of proliferation, um, again, who are tied to these existing systems, um, also furthers the, the sense that like, there, 
who's going to manage it, right? Who's going to manage a Taylor Swift? Who's going to manage a Beyonce? Who's going to manage an Aerosmith? Um, it's the, in some ways the existing structures of, 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 of the label system that continues to have leverage over even in a really decentralized, even if, if creativity and the ability to generate this music becomes increasingly decentralized. Yeah, and I mean that once again going back to like like a gentleman's earlier comment from from the audience, it's like not to say that it won't be disruptive. It's not to say that like you know the power of these labels isn't transforming. I mean we can see that in the number of streams coming out of like what uh, the catalogs that the major labels have. It's like increasingly de decreasing. It's decreasing, yeah. yeah. So like I like I it's to his point, but the point is it's going to be attention. It's going to be like a fight. It's going to be like dictated like you know in back rooms the negotiations it's going to be dictated like in the court of law like it, like these things are going to like determine more what's i mean at least in like our lifetime determine the future of like this technology so like so um we probably got like five ten more minutes um maybe do you like where, where do you want to go from here because i wouldn't mind like seeing if anybody else wants to ask another question and somebody's already raising their hand but did you just want to say before we go turn to questions did you want to say anything else about i know we were discussing about um sort of like disruptive, disruptive analytics as like a possible potential or do you want to, would you rather turn to the audience or? Sure, yeah, I mean we were like talking through this before before this um, recording and we were like, okay, so <laughs> we're gonna be <laughs> kind of pessimistic about a lot of the potential for changes to existing power structures or radical changes to existing power structures, not changes at all. Um, but like what could really shift the dial um, and clearly, I mean, there's a, to like borrow Donald Rumsfeld's eternally useful phrase, like a lot of unknown unknowns out there. Um, and just the one one I've been, th the one I've been thinking about is what I've been thinking about is like disruptive analytics, which is that AI and the ability to harness like the, the kind of, of, of um, pattern analyzing potential of computation is not radically new, right? Certain kinds of players with large amounts of data, whether that's Google or YouTube um, or what you have you, they've existed for a while, right? Um, and one of the big open questions for me about these new technologies is, does the kind of proliferation of access to other, to a wider variety of positions within the music industry, within like kind of creative economy more generally, does that change things fundamentally. I mean, so does, if you're an artist and you're able to like do your own because, you know, ChatGPT makes it possible or, uh, new, you know, uh, various kinds of generative value make it possible to like really analyze trends or to really figure out the algorithm in real time at a, like a quantitative, not qualitative, like, like YouTube whisperer level. Um, does that change things? And I think, I think it might. Right, like there's a like if people get these tools and are able to use them in new ways. I mean, I don't know if it actually like reduces the gap in analytic potential between, for instance, artists and the more centralized players in the industry. Does that really change things? Like, like maybe. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think that like speaking of those centralized players, it is interesting that actually like you sent me this link for like UMG just patented this like AI technology that basically like is doing this very thing. Maybe foreseeing it, you know, see, foreseeing the future and being like, this is a possibility for like us to like one 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 level in which we might like actually like start to lose power and which we maybe should try to like take control of right now. 
Yeah, it was like something about like predictive marketing or something like that. It was like some new technology that they announced. So I mean, the point being though is that they're already foreseeing this kind of stuff, which I think if they're doing something like that, it shows like where they're worried. For sure, that is a possibility. Okay, so I thought we'd we'd end by just kind of flipping it and seeing if anyone has questions. Um, Okay, sir, the metal t-shirt. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I I build these models. AI music neural synthesis models. Hell yeah. Uh, and I had a question about a nuance beyond deep fakes and likeness imitations. So one thing you could do is train a model on 10 million songs uh, and generate something that's kind of like mixing all those colors in a bucket and painting with it. I wonder what, how you guys think the players in the field are going to react to this, what, what the narrative will be. Because it's, it's kind of impossible to license. I mean, sh- I don't, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was the girl talk example. I don't know if that's like, I don't know, you, you can push back on this. But like, there's this big thing about like, okay, I, I read this newsletter and they said like the stupidest thing I've ever read in my life, but like, I won't name it. But it was basically, maybe you all read it, but it's basically like, there's an argument out there that like, basically like, Girl Talk didn't get sued by the major labels because it was just so original, so amazing and original that it like, like and I'm like, like, they couldn't like hold up in a court of law. And I'm like, bullshit. If the majors wanted to sue the fuck out of that dude, they could. The problem was that guy only sold 20,000 fucking records and it was an independent label out of LA. All right. Like, you know, not to mention, but they did and they have. Like, why was De La Soul not, not, on, not on streaming for like ever? Why was like the Little Wayne's The Drought like, not available forever. It's because like these are like legacy players. I mean, their music's gonna be streamed and played and bought and whatever AI generated, whatever you know, hologrammed, like whatever Web threed. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just being sassy now. But like you know, for like a long time, like their money, right? It's money. Like Dale Soul's money, Lil Wayne's money. Girl talk, they don't care. And I think there actually is a book out there where like they actually do quote one of these executives. He's like, it wasn't even worth it. Like you know, legal fees would cost more. So I don't know. Maybe going to this point, I think it depends. Like who's in the stew, you know? Who's getting jacked, you know? And if it's like one of these major players, maybe then then pay attention. If it's like if it's, I mean, I think like the thing I found. I mentioned this on a podcast. The thing I find so interesting is like, would if it wasn't fake Drake, but it was fake like Ways Blood or fake Caroline Polachek. Would we have the same situation? I'm seeing people shaking their head no. So I mean, that kind of answers like what so, you're trying to say. Also, I mean, I kind of to, to kind of build off that answer, Saxon. I mean, I think that also like how big, how big is it, right? I do think that like if you create like um, you generative AI to create music and it kills. I think that if we know anything about the music industry in the last like hundred years of the music industry is that there would be a, that initial one would get really, really big and maybe be able to kind of start an independent label, which would eventually be distributed through Warner and then, and then, and then it would get co-opted in some way. Um, And then, and partially because I think that the sense of like leverage um, and the choke points of the industry that the existing system of like streaming, right? It still needs, the AI artist still needs to be put on a, on playlists. It still needs to exist next to all these other pieces of music. And you I got to access it somewhere. It's got to be on a platform. How are you going to stream it on the subway? And so I, I do think that that um, will start, that kind of soft power starts shaping norms. It starts shaping connections. Um, 
And yeah, I think in some ways the Girl Talk example is a really good one. I mean, I think that there'll be there's going to be a lot of really dope experimental generative AI music that gets produced that no one really sues about. And then there will be some that sounds kind of like Britney Spears. And then there will be some like serious legal wrangling about it because, you know... Uh, you remixing The Locust, no one will care. You remixing Britney Spears, watch <laughs> out. Locust. You get a cease and desist. <laughs> <laughs> For The Locust? Yeah. Justin? Okay, sorry. But we, we have, a, we have a, a burning question. Uh, I have a question, but before I get to it, um, I want to just talk about these large language models that you create. You've been talking about the music business, but you could have also been using the term labor, the labor market. And that, that model that you've been building has ignored the realities of what the effects are on the labor market, whether it's big or small. So here's my question for you guys. I feel like using... Um, the, the war metaphor that you raised before, that what you've been talking about today, the topic is fighting the last war, the attention war. As I understand this AI technology, the battle that we're about to face is the intimacy war and who owns the most intimate relationship. That's barely a question, but I offer you to use it as a prompt. What, what do you mean by the intimate relationship? Like the, like the relationship between like... I'll let the expert talk about it. Between, between the major labels? It's not my expertise. <laughs> between artists and fans? Fans? So, I mean, I do think for a fact, I mean, there was just a really fascinating panel about um, what it means to be fan first. And I don't know if folks have really thought through the ways in which the social dynamics and the parasocial dynamics around music are going to be shifted when you can talk to Drake all the time, right? Like, all the time you can talk to Drake and, like, have a, a relationship with a Drake who knows you. My replica is Drake, actually. <laughs> Anybody get that? And and yeah, and in you. that in, the, in those regards, in those regards, I would actually, in a weird way, push again for an argument of like, I mean, it's the classic like historian move of like change but difference, difference within change, because I mean, I do think that again, thinking about industrial music where or industrial mass culture when music was its own thing, separate from other things, right? There was. Hollywood, and there was TV, and there was music, and people would cross between these industries some, but they weren't fundamentally the same. But if you look at, like, pre-recorded music, if you look at, like, I do a lot of research about vaudeville, right? No one is just a singer. Because if you just get up on stage live and just sing, like, that sucks, right? That's why everyone's a singer and a dancer and a comedian and an actor, and they can also do pratfalls, right? And you, like get this, and you get this like broader set of performance skills. And I think if you look at like the emergence of TikTok as a major music platform, right, where increasingly it's multimodal, increasingly you're getting stars who are like, for me, uh, like a real uh, indicator of change is Doja Cat, which is the first musician, musician who I like whose music I don't love. <laughs> I like some Doja Cat, but I like Doja Cat a lot more then I like Doja Cat's music because Doja Cat's a multimedia performer, right? Meow. And has a whole <laughs> and has a whole set of like 
dynamics and parasocial dynamics because you're seeing her goof off, you're seeing her respond to videos, and, and exactly what the line is between a musician and this other thing has gotten blurrier. And I can only imagine that what you're saying about the ways in which large language, large language models will allow different kinds of intimate interactions, it really seems to me that, that those kinds of lines are only gonna get blended more and more, where people are coming from music, but music kind of returns to its place. If you think about like, not to get too anthropological, but right, music is a way to like organize societies and organize sounds and distinguish times from each other, right? It's like a profound social technology that because of a distinct set of technological affordances was kind of removed from that broader context, though enters back into it in different places, like the, you know, the sacred of the concert hall or whatever. And I do, I do think that what you're gonna get is this kind of the return of music to this broader set of interactions around it, many of which from the perspective of like mid 20th century look extra musical, but maybe the way to think about it is that what music is, is changing and is gonna change. So maybe we'll put a bow in it uh, right there so everybody can like break and go for lunch. Uh, I think we've already gone off, gone over about seven or eight minutes. This was really great. Thank you so much for your questions. We, 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 we record, we record, you know, like in our like, you know, apartments alone and so like it's really no idea who's faces. listening. So to have these challenging questions was like really, really wonderful. And please talk to us out and about. We'd love to hear more from you and like maybe even get a couple of you on the show sometime. So thanks again. Rate and review and tell a friend. <laughs>